Amen. You may be seated. And how we give all praise, honor, and glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And certainly it is uh, passages and truths like that from Romans chapter 2 that you've just heard that drive us to our hope in Christ. Where would we be if our hope was in ourselves? It would be completely lost. Welcome all of you today, those who are joining online and if you are our guests today, we're in a series we've just begun recently in this epistle of Romans, this Mount Everest of Scripture. So I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. There's Bibles provided in front of you nearby if you'd like to take that and turn there as well. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a little story about my mom, okay? My mom was uh, never once, as far as I know, in her entire life in a courtroom, okay? As far as I know. She never told me about it, she was. But her favorite television shows, almost all of them had to do with courtrooms. Uh, she called them her programs, okay? her programs and you better be very clear as one of the boys when mom was watching one of her programs. Now some of her favorite programs I remember when I was just a little guy a little guy uh, one of her favorite programs was Perry Mason Perry Mason yeah okay some of you of a certain age as well right okay Probably reruns, I guess. Classic. Perry Mason, Raymond Burr, was not a case that he could not solve and always in the courtroom, right? Always. And when Perry Mason was on, you needed to stay out of Perry's way in, in our house. Well, finally I thought, oh great, that this program's going off. And then the rerun started, okay? And if that wasn't enough, then as soon as Raymond Burr ends all those years as Perry Mason, he starts as Ironside, okay? Ironside, now this is my mom's fave, okay? Ironside, Raymond Burr as a police investigator in San Francisco, uh, sort of uh, Perry Mason in a wheelchair. That's sort of the way that worked out, okay? And we had to... Be quiet. Mom was watching her program of Ironside. Well, by the time I'm out of middle school, uh, Ironside's going off. Okay, maybe a break. But now, no, we've got Barnaby Jones. <laughs> Barnaby Jones, okay. And this was hard, okay, because being raised on that you know, classic of American literature, the Beverly Hillbillies, okay? <laughs> being, being raised on that, I mean, Jed Clampett as a private investigator. Come on. I mean, you know. And I, I just thought that was the funny. It's Jed. He's a PI, but mom didn't see the humor in that. I thought it's just weird, mom. It's just a little weird. And then... I went to college, and then even early in marriage, but if you came home, mom still had programs, and one of her programs, it didn't matter 
married or not, Matlock's on, okay? <laughs> Matlock. Now we got Andy Griffith <laughs> as a Southern lawyer. Andy Griffith, okay? And I can't help it. In my mind, when I'm seeing him talk to the judge, I'm just still hearing him talk to the judge like, Oh, barn, come on. You know? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but woe to the son that ever in interrupted some of mom's programs. Gracious southern lady, but don't mess with her programs. Now, on the other hand, I have been in numerous courtrooms. <laughs> Never as a defendant. I want to make that very clear, okay? Never as a defendant. And also, please keep this as a secret. I don't know how it's happened. I've never been in a courtroom as a juror. Never. Never once. Several times I have been in courtrooms, though. Several times to especially to support families in challenging situations. I've been there. But one thing I've learned about courtrooms, real courtrooms, not television courtrooms, real courtrooms. Courtroom is no place for excuses. It's no place for excuses, especially from the accused. It's it's not enough. Just the, excuse, the accused just says, you know, I, I, just, I just didn't see that speed limit of 35 when I was going 100. Okay. <laughs> the judge is going to say, oh, he didn't see the sign. Case dismissed. <laughs> no, no, I, I didn't see that. You could add any other kind of charges... And the judge is not going to say, oh, your, your lack of knowledge is an excuse. Or it was an accident. That was an excuse. Or you'll try better next time. That's an acceptable excuse. Well, here in Romans, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18. Note that in your Bible. All the way through chapter 3... Verse 20, Paul takes us into a courtroom. And he is speaking like a prosecuting attorney. He takes us into a courtroom. It's God's courtroom. It's the courtroom of perfect justice. And Paul says there are three types of defendants in this courtroom. And he tells us, what their three excuses are. So Paul sets up, the, sets up this scenario of three different types of people who are in the courtroom of God's justice and they are making excuses. And how he shares this goes to the heart of all people about our excuses to God. Now last week, we saw the excuse of the hedonist. The excuse of the hedonist. Chapter 1, verse 18. 
to the last verse, verse 32. The hedonist, what's his excuse? Well, the hedonist excuse is this. I don't need an excuse. Uh, There's no court that has jurisdiction over me. Uh, There's really no judge who judges me. I, I judge myself. I am my own judge. No one judges me. And Paul shows very clearly how this kind of excuse is is an act of suppression of the truth of God because one thing very clear in God's Word is there is a judge, right? Almighty God's the judge. And to suppress His truth is to literally suppress our own ability to think rightly. To suppress us into greater darkness and self-deception. Ultimately where our minds don't even operate accurately. And ultimately can lead people to the point to be like the devil himself. Where evil is called good and good is called evil. This is the excuse of the hedonist, but he or she is without excuse. Now today what I want us to do is look at chapter 2 and see that there are two more types of people who bring their excuses. And Paul already anticipates them and he's going to address them. And that has great impact to us today, especially as Moral people, quote-unquote, as religious people. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, is the excuse of the moralist. The excuse of the moralist in God's courtroom. And then verses 17 through 29 is the excuse of the religionist. The excuse of the moralist and the excuse of the religionist. Religionist. And what we're going to see today is the theme here that Paul's making. There are no unexcused excuses. Unexcused excuses. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is just walk through this passage. Usually when you're opening up a passage of Scripture as a a teacher or preacher, you're trying to take away... And make sure the people have the big idea. What's the big idea that you want people to see in the text and leave with? But there's a challenge in Romans chapter 2. And this is a challenge. There's about 10 big ideas. And this is one of the most closely, listen, this is one of the most closely reasoned passages in the Word of God. And so we just have to carefully follow the Apostle Paul's thinking as he's led by the Spirit. And so today, basically, once you understand, the outline is the sermon, okay? So you that like taking notes, today's a smorgasbord for you. (laughs) You that hate taking notes, I'm sorry, deal with it the best you can, okay? 
But let's just walk through this. Unexcused excuses of two types of people. First of all, Paul doesn't stop his thought thought in chapter 1. He carries it right on. Notice, therefore. He carries it on anticipating that there will be some that are moral people who will look at the people Paul's just described and go, tisk, tisk, tisk. My, my, my. What's the world coming to? And so Paul's going to show the unexcused excuses of the moralist. All of you know the courthouse figure is what? Blind justice. Blind justice, impartial. But the problem with the moralist is this. The moralist is blind to justice about himself. So notice here the blindness of the moralist judgment. Because the moralist not only doesn't judge himself, he passes judgment on other people. He's a pro at it. Or she is. Verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, who judge those who practice such things, yet you do them, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume... On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Not knowing that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent, unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be Reveal. Now notice the blindness of the moralist who measures himself against other people that he deems or she deems to be less. Notice there's a blindness to the nature of God and the nature of sin. God does not judge our sins by comparing us to others. How does God judge sin? God judges sin by comparing sin to the perfect standard, which is himself. The Bible says, when we compare ourselves to others, we are not wise. Judgment is not going to be based on a curve. The whole classroom of humanity was so terrible... Well, you're not that bad. No. A moralist is blind to the nature of God and the nature of sin. Sin is breaking God's law. Number two. Moralist is blind to his or her own faults. They see the faults of others, but they don't see their own faults. Here's a quote for you. Real quote. I have spent, quote, I have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures 
and helping them to have a good time. And all I get is abuse and the existence of a hunted man. You know what? Wonderful guy said that. Al Capone. Al Capone, the gangster who orchestrated the St. Valentine's Day massacre and the massacre of scores of other people. But friends, lest we compare ourselves to an Al Capone, okay, let's recognize how vulnerable we are. Because I read in the Bible of a man who orchestrated some of the greatest psalms ever written. The sweet psalmist of Israel, King David. And what was King David capable of apart from God's grace? No one is immune to the virus of sin. The moralist may think he or she is, but he or she isn't. Another symptom of the moralist is this. It's a symptom of moralistic religion. Blind to believe that in pronouncing judgment on others, he or she will escape judgment. Blind in believing that pronouncing judgment on others, yet they will escape God's judgment themselves. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Here is what a moralist does. Listen carefully. A moralist views their own sin with a telescope, and they view the sins of others with a microscope. Oh, I've got a few things wrong in my life. I'm not perfect. You're way, way off there. But this guy. That's what moralists do. They believe pointing their fingers at others. That somehow God's finger will not be pointed at them. But the greatest blindness of the moralist is this. He or she is blind to believe that the tolerance and kindness of God is favor with God. They actually believe that because God has been tolerant toward them, God has been kind toward them that this means they're right with God. They have favor with God. For how in the world could things be so good with me if I'm not right with God? Well, here's the answer. Verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and His forbearance and His patience? Are you ignoring the fact that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance? That God in His goodness desires no man to perish, but that all might come to repentance. He is good to all. He sends His rain, Jesus said, on the fields of the just and the unjust. And yet a moralist inverts that saying because things are good with me 
that must mean I'm good with God. And my friend, those two are not connected whatsoever. I don't care whose books are on your shelf. And I don't care how often you watch that. That is nothing but American greed that's being purveyed as religion. It is a false gospel to believe that the favor on your life physically, especially financially, so you can share it with that ministry, means God is happy with you. I think we could come up with a few names of folks that are a lot wealthier than any of us in this room, and I'm just not so sure God's okay with all that. But it doesn't matter the amount of your bank account. We can be drawn into this. True story. Years ago, a farmer who had nothing to do with God waited till Sunday morning got on his tractor at harvest time and just as the church was singing and the pastor was preaching, he pulled his tractor up right next to that church building and as he was harvesting, making all that noise. And that week, he wrote to the paper and said to the editor, this is what I did this, this past weekend and you know what? My farm has got the highest yield per acre of any farm in this county. And you know what the editor did? He published the man's letter and then had this statement under it. God does not settle all his accounts in October. God does not settle all of his accounts. In October. No, it is God who patiently, patiently fills the barn of the unrighteous moralist, but the moralist doesn't understand something. He or she is filling his or her barn with something. What is he or she filling her or his barn with? Verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This impenitence, this moralistic hypocrisy is just building and building and building and building a greater storehouse of God's wrath that will pour out one day. On, in the judgment. Now Paul, having described the blindness of the moralist to God's judgment, he reveals plainly what is the basis of the master's judgment. What's the basis of the master's judgment? How are we going to be judged? What's the basis of the master's judgment? Three things. Number one, they will be judged by their life. Verses 6 through 10, look at this. He will render to each one 
according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also to the Greek. Now how are people going to be judged by the master? Notice three ways. They will be judged by their life. Now this is one of the most misunderstood passages maybe in the New Testament. So listen carefully. God is not saying here, he is not sharing here that the basis of salvation will be good works. The, the New Testament is crystal clear on that and Paul is crystal clear on it and he's going to be very clear next Sunday. So come and listen to it, okay? <laughs> he's been very clear. Look back at chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17, he says, there is a righteousness that God has revealed that is by faith, <laughs> apart from works. It's by grace. So God is not saying here a person earns their salvation by their works. What is he saying? He's, God is saying here that the basis of a, his judgment will be the life works of people. The, the truth is crystal clear. We've got to accept this. The truth is, we do what we do because we are who we are. We do what we do because we are who we are. Now, believers who are true believers in Jesus are not perfect. We understand that. The Bible says if a man says he has no sin, he is what? A liar. Not only is he a liar, don't ever buy a used car from him, all right? But believers do persevere patiently. Believers have been saved for the purpose of good works. And all of our works are not good. But we do desire good works. We, we try to live in a way that is a blessing to God. We patiently pers persevere. Verse 7, you see this perseverance? To those who by patience in well-doing... Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. What is he saying here? He's saying those who out of true faith are patiently, even in the hard times, pursuing that life to come, he will give eternal life one day. Believers live each day within eternity in view. Unbelievers leave, live each day self-focused, blind to eternity. If you live every day just for that day, then your heart's never been open to eternity. Because once God opens your mind to this fact that you are an eternal soul, you will know that your life 
has eternal importance and that your life will be examined someday and you will live that way. Believers live self-focused lives, blind to eternity. Verse 8, notice, though those who are self-seeking and because they're self-seeking and everything's driven by selfishness, they're not obeying the truth. But they're unbaying this unrighteous selfishness. And on that unrighteous selfishness will come wrath and fury. My dear friends, listen to me. I'm just reading the Bible here. Amen? I'm just reading the Bible. God says in His judgment, people will be judged by their life. He says also they will be judged by their light. By their light. Look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles... Notice, he's, now he's setting it up. Jews, Gentiles... When, when the Gentiles do those things, even though they do not have the law, when they do what the law requires, they show that they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law of Moses. Amen. They show that the work of the law, the law of God, is written on their hearts, while their conscience bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. Here's Paul anticipating the question. Here's the question he anticipates. What about the Gentiles who've never heard of God's law? Well, here's two eternal principles. Listen carefully. He's speaking to those who have the law, and he wants them to understand Increased light brings increased responsibility. People are not judged. Listen, listen, church. People are not judged by God on the basis of what they don't know. They're, ba- they're judged on the basis of what they do know. And even people who have never heard of the law of Moses... They have, as image bearers of God, written in their very conscience the laws of God, the understanding of God, and a responsibility to God. Look at verse 15. This is what Paul is saying to people who've never received the law of God. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts and their conscience, which bears witness of God. And their thoughts are conflicting within them, either to accuse them or to excuse them. There is a a judge in their conscience. Now, let me tell you this about conscience. Conscience is sufficient to condemn us. But conscience is not sufficient to convert us. Your conscience is sufficient to let you know you're not right with God. 
But your conscience is not sufficient to tell you how to get right with that God. Conscience warns us. Why? Because as God begins through our conscience to reveal that we have a need to be made right with our Creator, what do we start doing? We start looking (laughs) and praying and asking for light to know this way of truth. But when the conscience is rejected, listen carefully, when you silence the conscience, when your conscience convicts you and you silence it, and you silence it, and you silence it, what you're also doing is you're scarring it. And you scar your conscience. You scar your conscience until eventually you can have what the Bible calls a seared conscience. You don't feel anything anymore. And friend, when sin doesn't bother you, you are in desperate condition. You need to pray That sin will bother you. Because it's that bothering of you that is the work of the Holy Spirit working through your conscience that can lead you to repentance and faith in Christ. God's judgment will be perfectly just. People will be judged by their life that they've lived. People will be judged by their light. Everybody's not just going to be dumped into a flaming lake of hell. All equal punishment. No. It will be based on individual life works and on the light that they have. And the judgment ultimately, here's the third thing about God's judgment. It's by our life, by our light, And it's by our Lord. Verse 16. Who is the judge? On that day. When according to my gospel. God judges the secrets of men. By Christ Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. The father has committed all judgment to the son. You see, when you give an account of your life one day, you'll be looking at a man. A glorified man, but a man. And that man is Christ Jesus, God incarnate. You will not be standing before some force, some radiating light, You will be looking into the face of Jesus of Nazareth. And you'll give account of your life. Because all judgment's been given to Jesus. His judgment will be perfect. All Jesus does is perfect. No one, listen, no one in the day of judgment, we'll be able to point a finger at Jesus and say, you're unfair. 
When he is finished with his judgment, every person will say, your judgment is fair. All our lives, the secret things opened. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.13, all things are naked and open before the eyes of whom we have to do. Those are unexcused excuses by the moralists. But now just for a moment, as we come to a close, I want you to listen to the excuses of the moralist, holy first cousin. Who's the moralist, holy first cousin? He is a holy moralist, but he bases his moral judgment of others on his religion. He's a religionist. Now there is an almost worldwide belief. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Because this is the great deception of Satan. Atheism has killed its millions. But religion without Christ has killed its billions. Religion will not save you. If you are trusting religion to save you, name the religion. You are trusting in what cannot and will not save you. This is Paul's point. He shatters this. He shatters this false hope that religion will save you. Notice he says there's an emptiness of religious orthodoxy. You see, you can even be religious and have orthodox beliefs. Orthodoxy means right beliefs. You you can hold to right beliefs and have a right religion in beliefs, but not have redemption. So, Paul does not want anyone to fall into this. See, he's, he's pushing us. He's pushing us away from any hope in ourselves, isn't he? He's pushing us. He's pushing us away from any religion. Why? So that he might push us to the gospel. Who needs the gospel when you can do it yourself? Who needs a savior when you can save yourself? Who needs a redeemer when your religion can save you? That's what Paul's doing. He's pushing and pushing and pushing to show Empty religion. Now, if you're taking notes, I hope you know shorthand because I'm going to buzz through this. (laughs) What is, what are the characteristics of empty religion? You wonder what the characteristics of empty religion are? Here they are. Number one, it's it's when your religion... Is, is expressed in a trust in a religious pedigree. Who your family is. Who your people are. 
verse 17. I'd like to know how many people have a relative that's a pastor. I've never met someone in East Tennessee whose cousin or dad or somebody wasn't a pastor. And I want to tell you, I'm sorry for you, okay? That, that's a family shame, I'm sure. But now, notice, he's talking about if you call yourself a what? A Jew. And rely on the law. And you boast in God. Now, he's not making fun of Jews because who's writing this? The Apostle Paul, who is the most Jewish Jew you could ever be. But he was the most Jewish Jew who needed Jesus. <laughs> and he met Jesus. He said, you trust that you are a Jew. What's he saying? That you're a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, you get a pass. And this is what the rabbis taught in this time. No son of Abraham will go to hell. And what Paul says is absolutely not. The point he's going to make is this. Listen carefully. God has no grandchildren. He has children. You do not get rightly related to God because your dad or your mom was. It's an individual relationship. If you're trusting in your family or that you are... Fill in the blank. Change the word Jew. Just change the word Jew. And you'll get the point. Verse 17. You call yourself a Baptist. You call yourself a Methodist. You call yourself a Catholic. You call yourself... Fill in the blank. That means nothing to God. As far as salvation is concerned. Religious emptiness is based on trust in religious pedigree. Or trust in religious possession. You have truth somebody else doesn't have. Verse 18. Like the Jews, you know His will. You approve what is excellent. Because you are instructed from the law. You possess the Bible. Jews thought, well, we have the law. Well, we've got more than the law. We've got the whole thing. All 66 books. But friend, listen to me. The question is not, do you possess a Bible? The question is, does the Bible possess you? Amen. It's not the same. Number three, this empty Religion is expressed in trust in a religious privilege. I have a special place in my religion. You are sure, verse 19, you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment, the knowledge of the truth. You know what Paul's using here? These are terms that... The Jewish rabbis used for themselves. Guess what? Paul used to trust in this. This was his hope at one time. He would have said, this is who I am. And this is the reason I'm right with God. 
They are professors of the law, but they're not possessors of life. Friend, you can profess a doctrinal statement. You can profess all the truths of the Bible. But it's knowing the God of the Bible through the Son of God that brings everlasting life. Again, the principle is not just about Jewish rabbis. It can be anyone who is trusting they have a special possession from God and they know more about God than others. Well, how was empty religion exposed? How do you, how do you expose it? It's exposed this way. It's exposed in personal dishonor to God. When a person says one thing, but this is what's the truth. Verse 21 you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, are you robbing the very temples of God? Robbing God of His honor? You see, true faith brings true fruit. Now again, listen carefully. He's not talking about the perfection of a person's life. That's not what Paul is describing here. He's describing the direction of someone's life. We all sin. And we all come short of God's standard. Again, that's next week. Come back. But he's talking here about the direction of your life. And more importantly... The desire of your life. Here's how you can know that you've been soundly converted. The things that used to matter to you don't matter so much anymore. Or maybe you don't even want them. And now the things that used to not matter at all are most important to you. And you used to be able to do wrong, and you were okay. And now you do wrong, and it grieves your heart. This is evidence of a conversion. I cannot tell you how much, as a young man, I despise going to church. Never did I want to read the Bible. Never did I want to listen. I tried not to listen, but that mom I told you about earlier reach over and thump you on the head. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, I don't know what kind of force there is there. That ought to be measured someplace. <laughs> A mom's thump. It moved the world. <laughs> but when I, by God's grace and His grace alone, went to my knees... And ask him to be merciful to me, a hypocritical, phony. Friend, I can explain to you. I wanted to know what God had to say. And I didn't know any better than to know that you weren't supposed to take your Bible to school. And to read it. And the liberated librarian didn't like it. She didn't care about all that other trash I read. But when I came to the library and opened the Word of God, <laughs> call for the ACLU. 
Antichrist lawyers united, okay? Just, just, okay, sorry. That wasn't in my notes. And most of the time, that's the case. But it can ultimately lead to a public dishonor of God. Verse 23, Paul is thinking of King David. You boast in the law and you dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Interesting thing. We can point our fingers at people who don't know the Bible. They, they don't know the Bible. No, they, they probably don't know the Bible, but they un, have an uncanny way of knowing a hypocrite. Here's David being referenced here. This quote is from David's life when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, committed murder to cover it up, and God sent Nathan the prophet with his bony finger and said, you are the man. And yes, God is going to forgive you. Out of his grace, he's going to forgive you. But here's the great sin. Greater than the adultery, greater than the murder. By this, you, King David, have given the enemies of God a reason to blaspheme his holy name. One agnostic was asked why he never became a Christian. And he answered, I might have become, I might have become a Christian if I had not met so many of them. I'm reminded of a poem. It's simple but powerful. Listen to it. The gospel is written a chapter a day. By the deeds that you do. By the words that you say. People read what you've written. Whether just and true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? What's the gospel according to your life? And finally, Paul says the most offensive thing he could say to a Jewish person. Now, Paul's Jewish. And he says the most offensive thing that could be said to a Jewish person about the emptiness of religious ordinances. The emptiness of religious ordinances. And the principle here is the most offensive thing a Christ follower can say to religious people. Say it in love, but say it. Verse 25, listen and then I'll explain and we're done. For circumcision, he's speaking to Jewish people. 
circumcision, circumcision is the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. Okay? It's the sign of the religion and the racial identity of the Jewish people. Okay? Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, he's Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded before the Lord as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. You who have the written code and you have circumcision, but you break the law. What is he saying here? Empty religion, religion without reality, is a religion that trusts in external physical ritual. Let me say that again. It is a trust for salvation in external, physical, ritual. So if you want to open this passage, substitute the words circumcision. You'll say, thank you very much. Okay, substitute the word here. Baptism. Catechism. Confirmation, going to the Mass, observing communion, church attendance, giving to the church. Insert any of those for the word circumcision and you get the message. Empty religion is a religion that is trusting for salvation based on external actions physically carried out but they're just ritual. The gospel is this. The gospel is internal. It is spiritual. It's reality. Here, Paul is quoting the prophecies about a new covenant that was coming. A new covenant with a new circumcision, not of the body, but of the heart by the Spirit. He says this, for one is a Jew. That is, he means here, one is a member of the family of God. Is not merely outwardly. That is physical, that's ritual, but someone who is a member of the family of God is one inwardly. And they have had the knife of God's grace cut them to the heart by the Spirit of God. And they're not trusting in the letter of the law. Their trust is in God And His grace. This is the new covenant. 
What is he saying? You see what he's setting up? This is so offensive. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. You must be born again, Nicodemus. The best of the Jews. Jesus said, you must be born again. And he's saying to the best person in this congregation, whether you're the best Baptist or the best Methodist, whether you're the best Calvinist or you're the best Arminian, whether you're the best holiness, whether you're the best Bible study student, whatever, you must be born again. You have to have the Lord by His grace and mercy show you you cannot save yourself. Because if you can save yourself, then Jesus died in vain. Jesus cried, Is there no other way? Take this cup from me. There was no other way. Unless that sinless Son of God died on the cross for our sins, we're doomed to hell. But in that day, He took the wrath of God I deserved, you deserved. He took your punishment and He accepted it. And He cried out, it's finished. And God Almighty showed that he was satisfied with what Jesus did for you by raising from the dead. And now all who come to him by faith, all of them who come by faith, Muslims, Buddhists, Confucius, Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, even Baptists, who will come to God By faith in Jesus, become his children. And guess what you hear from the judge? Your debt's been paid. Defendant, you're excused. Welcome to the family. That's the excuse I'm trusting to hear about you. Jesus paid it all. That's the only hope I have. That's the only hope you need. Lord, bless us as we close. I'm so thankful for these faithful people who've listened so intently. I have tried, O Father, to make known your gospel, and I desperately need it myself. My only hope is Jesus Christ. And O Lord, thank you. That's my only need. And Lord, I pray for every person here. May our hope be in Christ. And may we know, regardless of what we've done in the past, what we've done this weekend, Jesus is sufficient. And all who come to Him are forgiven of all their sins.
Oh, Lord, may none leave. I plead, may none leave without settling this, that their hope is in Christ. This is my prayer, Lord Jesus. Amen.